0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thanks very much to all of you for joining us and to the Commonwealth Club for hosting this conversation. As someone myself who grew up in the Bay Area on a steady diet of public radio, uh, I've had Commonwealth Club in my ears for a long time, and so it's uh, quite an honor to be hosting this one. My name is Matt Sheehan, and I'm a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where my research focuses on China's technology ecosystem, in particular artificial intelligence Um, Before that, I lived and worked in China for about five years, including as a foreign correspondent. And it's when I came back from China for the first time uh, back in 2016 that I had a chance to meet our speaker here tonight. And that's Brian Wong. Uh, Brian is a longtime senior executive at Alibaba. and He's the author of a wonderful new book entitled The Tao of Alibaba, inside the Chinese digital giant that is changing the world. So Brian was the first American and only the 52nd employee At Alibaba Group. Um, That's way back in 1999 when it was just a little known startup. And over the course of his sort of 16 year tenure at the company, he held a lot of positions and took on a lot of major projects, mostly in the international initiatives, including acting as a special assistant to the Alibaba founder, Jack Ma. Um, That work took him all over Asia, India, Europe, the United States where he helped expand Alibaba's business and build uh, stuff like the Alibaba Global Initiatives and the Alibaba Global Leadership Academy. Brian is also the founder and chairman of Radii, a digital media company that bridges and and remixes Eastern and Western cultural trends in everything from hip-hop to the history of paper lantern making in China. (laughs) So I, I first met Brian when he was preparing to found Radii, and we talked a lot about creating spaces where people in China and the United States could actually come to understand each other, maybe even to empathize with each other, and to just get a really sort of grounded set of insights into the other country and the other culture. And I'm very happy to say that I think Brian has achieved that kind of cultural bridging with his new book, The Tao of Alibaba. With that, I'm going to hand it over to Brian for some opening remarks on the book, followed by a QA and a that will be moderated by me. But if you're watching along with us, please put your questions and comments in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. So over to you, Brian.
1: Hey, thanks so much, Matt. And thank you to the Commonwealth Club uh, for this invitation to uh, share some thoughts about the Tao of Alibaba, but also the larger topic of sort of technology and this uh, nexus of China and the United States. Um, it's a great honor to to be able to have this conversation and you know to kind of just get into the, uh, the highlights of, of the book itself. Um, you know, Matt. I know you're uh, a native uh, Palo Alto, um, and it's it's great to reconnect. And uh, just like yourself, I, I grew up in um, the Bay Area. Grew up in Palo Alto as well. I think both of our fathers are actually uh, professors, if I recall. Um, and we both ended up in China. Um, so. You know, the Tao of Alibaba is really an, an effort uh, on my part to, as you mentioned earlier, to try and bridge some understanding between uh, the East and West vis-a-vis this um, experience that I had, which lasted o- almost 20 years. Um, I, I really break the book down, I guess you could say, into three areas, or I have three objectives in in, in writing this book. Um, the first was really kind of on a... Um, macro level, just trying to identify for, you know, either policymakers or, or business people, what were the enabling factors uh, that led to the rise, the rapid rise, I may add, of China's digital economy, um, looking at and reflecting on both the role of the government and the private sector. So that's kind of the first um, kind of aspect of the book. I'd say the second um objective was really to provide an insider perspective, kind of pull back the curtain, so to speak, on Alibaba's management ethos and how it thinks from, from a, a leadership perspective. Um, I really felt that this would be very helpful for entrepreneurs and business executives alike who are either uh, building their own companies or really just trying to understand what are some um, you know, learnings that can be uh, gleaned from uh, one of the most influential internet uh, technology companies to come out of China. So that's what I call the secret sauce. And then the third aspect of the book is really uh, more of a personal story. Um, me as uh, you know, uh, a young uh, executive, kind of moving from uh, Palo Alto, California to Hangzhou at the time, 1999. Uh, and as we know, China in 1999 was very different. Um, it had a per capita income of $800 per person. And I think they had about 8 million internet users. Uh, at the time. And so this um, journey or experience, so to speak, really taught me um, in many ways um, uh, kind of how technology can really impact society, particularly in emerging markets. But uh, on top of that, I think there is another narrative that 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 sort of is intertwined, which is really this Eastern philosophy that kind of um, really uh, governed many of the uh, kind of the approaches that Alibaba used in its own development. And uh, that's partly why I call this book the Tao of Alibaba. The Tao is really this theme, thematic sort of thread that you'll see in the book. Um, and as we all know, Tao is kind of a Chinese philosophical uh, sort of, you know, um, set of beliefs that um, we kind of hear day in, day out, uh, the Tao of this, the Tao of that. But if I kind of simplify it and break it down, I I, I I talk about three aspects. It's this concept of a path or way, which is sort of you can apply it to a company, you can apply it to uh, individuals in their lives, but really finding that path as, as part of the driver of, of you know, one's existence. Uh, the second aspect is harmony. So how do, does an organization sort of fit into the larger sort of context of the universe in terms of the dynamics taking place? And then the third aspect of the Tao that I talk about is this concept of embracing contradictions. And this is probably the most complex. Um, I know you talk about it even in your own book, Matt, about this dialectic of East and West and, uh, the, the convergence of China and U.S. in terms of its culture and its, its, its people. And, and so this concept of embracing contradictions of this dialectic runs throughout the book in terms of the company's management principles, how leaders think, but also kind of how we see the world today in terms of this east and west sort of, you can call it a a convergence, also a collision, depending on the the point of view. So that in a nutshell is kind of the book, um, uh, you know, uh, and hopefully that that gives a brief overview of of kind of, you know, what I talk about.
0: Great. Thanks so much, Brian. Um, I kind of want to start Very much at the beginning, even in the pre Alibaba days. You know, the heart of the book is about your experiences there and what you learned. But you did arrive in China initially as a master's student back in 1996, 97 went on to work as a market entry specialist in a, at a sort of boutique consultancy. But this is very much not the kind of American management consultant, you know, flying <laughs> from one hotel boardroom to the next one. Uh, it's a much different world. You In the book, you you title that section, Indiana Jones in a Business Suit. And you, you paint this nice picture of uh, sort of careening through industrial small towns in China, quote, being ferried on the back of a whining motorcycle clinging to a brief briefcase, my necktie flapping wildly in the breeze. Um, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about the, the China that you encountered back then, you know, the places you were visiting, the type of work you were doing, the projects you were doing and how those experiences shaped how you viewed the country and, and how you work viewed working in the private sector, working in business.
1: Yeah. Well, that, that's, it's a great question, uh, Matt. I, that was 1997. Uh, I had just graduated from the Hopkins Center, which was in Nanjing, which was a the first educational joint venture between uh, U.S. and China universities, Johns Hopkins University, and Nanjing University. And um, I, I moved to Hong Kong, where I was based, thinking that, oh, everyone was talking about management consulting as, you know, a great job out of college or grad school. I had actually been on a, a track to, uh, looking at public health. I thought I was going to go um, – pursue a career in trying to help save lives. But clearly I, I got a bit derailed, but I thought that management consulting might be a good way to learn what business was about. And, um, it was really, as you mentioned, um, kind of the, the wild West, uh, at that time, uh, I think it was a moment where multinationals were very fascinated with China as a market, but it was still very much one where they were trying to set up operations to do uh, manufacturing. China was very much um, still a, a kind of export-driven economy. In fact, it was still in its formative stages. So for me, um, in taking on the job, I spent very little time in Hong Kong and much more time, as you mentioned, on the back of motorcycles in Foshan or Shunde in southern China, I did projects uh, looking at the nylon uh, supply chain for a filament, nylon filament manufacturer, understanding the whole extrusion process, then the weaving and knitting process, and then the apparel building process. I flew from Taiwan to, you know, parts of China and, and, and other parts of Asia to understand that whole system. And for me, what it showed or re- reflected was that there was a change taking place uh, in Asia where the West was setting up many of its businesses there, but to serve the larger global markets. But there was an information asymmetry. There was an asymmetry that was requiring young guys like me to literally go out there on the frontier and go door to door talking to factory manufacturers, trying to figure out how everything fit together. And then how did I find that information? I would literally go to trade shows and go booth to booth to talk to suppliers and manufacturers and try and piece this together um, and then provide a report to companies like DuPont or you know Danfoss. I, I did a big project around sewer pumps and understanding how these water pumps fit into these larger sort of uh, construction projects. But that information was not very um, transparent, so to speak. You had to kind of piece it together. And so for me, uh, it was an educational process. It was exciting. It was uh, anything but the standard boardroom management consulting experience. Um, But it was, it was enthralling, it was thrilling. And I got to see on the front line how China was evolving thanks to, um, investment, thanks to private sector. I mean, you know, me, I came from a very liberal college. I always thought business was like a, you know, a bad word. It was like where all the greedy people go to make money and, and extract, uh, you know, uh, resources and exploit, you know, labor. But I also saw uh, ironically how society was changing. And how, um, for the better, the infrastructure that was being built, the jobs that were being created. And um, so that was the start of kind of my China, uh, you know, adventure or career, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I mean, those uh, many of my most treasured memories from China take place, you know, at the end of a journey on the back of a motorcycle too. So that that, that part got me all nostalgic. Um, So moving from there, you know, uh, 1997, Asian financial crisis hits, starting in Thailand, I believe, and spreading out the region. And really, yeah, it affects a lot of the the jobs and the people that you were working with. So you end up back in California. You do a little bit work in the public sector for for Mayor Willie Brown. That's right. And then you have an opportunity that comes up um where you meet jack ma and uh jack ma is obviously a very central character in the book because he's a central character in the story of alibaba just a totally and utterly unique person um i was wondering if you could describe that first meeting with jack your first impressions of him and then how that led into your your first role at alibaba
1: sure so uh you know I was actually, as you mentioned, working in in San Francisco at the time. I was the special assistant to Mayor Willie Brown uh, as his special liaison to various districts, including the Richmond, uh, I think, Pack Heights and Chinatown. So it was a strange combination to try and represent, um, you know, the city government. But uh, growing up in Palo Alto and coming just coming back from China, I guess I, had the ability to kind of cover different parts of the city. Um, And, but I was always interested in what was happening uh, with regard to technology, just because growing up in in the Bay area, that was all around you and you sort of understood that was just part of everyday life. And um, what I was very curious about was how technology was going to affect or impact the uh, emerging markets. And so appreciating the value and impact of technology from a Silicon Valley standpoint, but looking um towards these emerging markets, um really kind of kept my 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 well it, it maintained a curiosity in terms of what was happening abroad. And when Jack came to San Francisco, um he was introduced through um a mutual friend, actually uh, Joseph Tsai, who was the um vice chair now of Alibaba, uh Joe was taking him to Silicon Valley to to do a fundraising. And I think he met with 30 on uh, thirty VCs at the time. Um, and he didn't raise a single dollar on that trip, uh, which, um, you know, you look back now, it's, it's surprising, but it, it's also understandable because at the time, it was still such a nascent company. I don't think they had more than 40 people. Uh, and I met Jack at the St. Francis Hotel. Um, and what struck me about Jack was uh, the charisma, the energy he had for the idea that he was trying to pursue. And I had looked at a number of companies at that time, Sina and and, and a few other uh, Chinese internet companies that were starting to emerge. But one of the things that really struck me about Alibaba was its linkage to trade in commerce. And I think that while at that time, you know, information portals were very much the thing, um, I asked myself, how does this link to the experience I had as a management consultant? What problem is it actually solving? And can it actually do good for the society uh, through the services it's providing? And Jack seemed so confident at the time about what he was doing. And he had, you know, a very strong uh, partner in that process because um, I knew about Joe's background. But it was obviously a big uh, gamble rolling the dice, but I, I immediately saw the potential and I saw that Jack was someone who had this charisma about him. So I made the decision to leave uh, San Francisco and move to Hangzhou. And um, that was a very uh, you know, a very <laughs> unique experience for that time to, to leave the comforts of San Francisco and then go to the outskirts of Hangzhou, which was very much still being built. Um, I I, I talk about my time at that time is kind of equivalent to living on a construction site because everywhere around (laughs) you, there were new buildings being, uh, you know, constructed. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Jack, uh, extremely unique individual. And and you you mentioned the charisma there. I've only had the chance to sort of be in the same room with him once and and listen to him talk. It's just it's just pure magnetism. There's just yeah. something where all eyes in the room immediately gravitate towards him. You just want to hear what he has to say. And it seems like that really did a lot of work in the early days of Alibaba and just kind of getting things moving.
1: Yeah. And he had a very different view from the typical entrepreneur at that time, because many of the Chinese entrepreneurs, as you recall, were returnees from MIT, from Stanford, or, or various you know Western institutions. Jack had no Uh, Western education um, at all, with the exception of a trip to Australia as a young man. Um, But he saw something and he was so confident about it in a way that he said, you know, um, uh, we're going to do things different from the typical sort of, you know, internet company, because I've, I've tried this in the past and I know that there is this need. And he was really focusing at the time on these small businesses, which most people were ignoring. Um, you will remember that uh, you know it's not the first time a, a technology company tried to pursue small businesses, but the problem was is there's so little money that they had to spend on, on services that um, it was a very challenging endeavor. But I think Jack was so close living in Zhejiang, in Hangzhou, to the SMEs, he understood there was, was a very big need for, for what he was trying to do.
0: Yeah. Um, so, you know, your your life, you've had very much a front row seat to Silicon Valley's development just growing up in Palo Alto, being in the region, and then uh, obviously a front row and, and a hands-on seat to the development of China's tech and innovation ecosystem. Um, and in the book, you talk about your ambitions for bridging these worlds. And when you're first heading back to, to Hangzhou or heading to Hangzhou to take up this role, you write that you, quote, I wanted to help bring some of Silicon Valley's ethos of innovation and entrepreneurship to China. Little did I know it would be China bringing that spirit to me. Kind of a maybe, yeah, reversal, going in with the idea that you're going to bring some of the secret sauce that is you know, unique to Silicon Valley, and then discovering that there's something else on offer there. There's already something <laughs> develop, developing there. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the relationship between Silicon Valley and China at that time. You know, How did mm. people in Silicon Valley, view China and what did they get wrong or what did they miss?
1: Sure. No. Um, so, you know, I, I think at the time, uh, Matt, and, 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 and this is a really, this is an ongoing, I think, topic that I, that, that deserves, you know, conversation um, because there's a lot to be learned on both sides. It was a humbling experience, um, to be honest, to go from Silicon Valley to China thinking that I had something so valuable to offer. I mean, first of all, I, I'll put it in the context. I wasn't a tech guy, even though I grew up in Palo Alto. So I, I hadn't done that much in the way of the, this whole tech experience, but I expected it to be like Silicon Valley in the way that my friends had described working at, you know, Yahoo or eBay or whatnot. Um, but I think that what they were hoping is that I could bring some some ideas and, and, and relationships and, and, you know, even how we design product to, to the company. For me, it was much more of a, of a learning in terms of understanding how China worked, and understanding that China actually at the time only had about thirty, you know, twenty thirty years uh, of business, sort of modern business, sort of um, uh, history at that point. At, with the Open Door Policy going through this whole communist sort of, you know, change, and then um, becoming more of a, a market driven economy, that was something that was was very much noticeable because they weren't. Um, on the one hand and compare that to America that had over 150 years of kind of business history and, uh, systems and processes, uh, China was very much on the fly. And so the way that we were doing things, we thought, you know, might be the Silicon Valley way, but they're very much kind of the Alibaba way, so to speak. And, um, Jack, uh, brought ideas, um, that were unique to how he saw things. We had a, A wuxia sort of uh, company culture. Wuxia is this kung fu genre, like you see Jet Li and all these films flying around with the swordsman and whatnot. This is inspired by this uh, kung fu uh, author, Louis Cha from Hong Kong, that Jack really revered. But that also had an underdog spirit about it uh, that, uh, you know, it, it sort of inspired people to kind of fight the battle, to use technology to help small businesses. And so there were all these different aspects of kind of Chinese uh, cultural kind of norms that were integrated into this um, Alibaba experience. And that was, that was something that, that was eye-opening for me and kind of a learning experience, but also how the technology was applied, I think was also very interesting. Um, Jack was not a technologist. You know, we talk about his first speech at Harvard Business School. He said Alibaba succeeded because it had no technology, no money and no business plan. And to me, that sounded absurd. And I said, how are we possibly going to succeed? But what you realize is that Jack was focused on how to use technology to solve these um, problems that he saw around him with regard to Chinese you know, businesses, small businesses and society as a whole. And um so if you ask me sort of how that then applied to Silicon Valley, I think that It was refreshing in a way. Um, It was a fresh look at how to use this technology revolution to address issues to create value. And um, it was inspired by Silicon Valley from the onset. Jack uh, always talks about how his first time in Silicon Valley, he he observed, you know, kind of how things were so vibrant and lively and the people that he met. And that was a great um, sort of role model for him in terms of how he approached his work. But then, in a way, Alibaba and, and Jack and, and the team became their own in, in terms of how they approach these things. And I think that one thing that often happens, Silicon Valley is so good at the tech, they develop tech for the sake of tech and sometimes forget the bigger picture. And I always comment that it took me, uh, it took me leaving Silicon Valley to really appreciate Silicon Valley, which is sort of an irony, but going to a place like China, an emerging market that started with very little and then created something of such high impact makes you realize just how much Silicon Valley has to offer the rest of the world. But what they have to do is kind of get out of the Silicon Valley bubble and realize that, okay, we're using world-class solutions to solve first world problems. What if we use these world-class solutions to solve, you know, uh, you know, the, the developing world's problems? That impact can become even greater. Uh, and so, um, that's a long way of answering your question, uh, Matt, but, just to say that the learnings work both ways and the time spent at Alibaba was extremely educational. And I, I think that that's also part of the, effort, the the reason or the motivation in writing this book is to kind of show uh, these aspects of, of what Alibaba was able to do with very basic technology at the start.
0: In there, you, you reference that. Quote from Jack Ma about uh, you know, the, the ingredients to success were uh, no business plan, no money, and no something else that no it sounds like you need to start yeah. a business. No, technology, <laughs> no technology, no <laughs> technology, no business plan. And I think it it gets at one aspect of the Tao of Alibaba as you lay it out. You know, you kind of gave us a lot of the principles there in the opening, but I wanted to zoom in on one of them that I think yeah. kind of is woven throughout the book in many places, which is improvisation. Okay. It's just the ability to sort of pivot, the ability to work on the fly, you describe especially in those early days, things feel very chaotic. They feel very, um, yeah. Unplanned. They feel very improvisatory. You might spend three weeks crashing on a project that at the very last minute, they just decide to shelve it and replace it with a totally different product. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could, you know, talk about the role that improvisation played in Alibaba's growth at the beginning, and then also how do you think that sort of changed or didn't change over time? How do you how do you maintain some of that the good parts of that culture as you scale up from a forty person company to one of the biggest companies in the world?
1: Yeah, I'll admit the improvisation is something that um, was quite. Um, hmm. You could say it was frustrating in the early days. There's a lot of uh, trial and error. And sometimes you wonder, do we even know what we're doing? And, you know, Jack says uh, Alibaba, starting Alibaba was like a blind man riding on the back of a blind tiger. Like the kind of um, experiences, you know, you couldn't plan things out and it was, it was very much uh, chaotic. But um, that was also a sign of the times, you know, China – was the fastest growing economy at the time, and the internet was the fastest growing industry at the time, and you're kind of at the eye of the storm. But I think that one of the key things that really allowed us uh, or Alibaba to succeed in spite of all that was this strong kind of uh, focus on on a mission and a vision. And and Jack would talk about that incessantly and to the point of ad nauseum. But it, it was you realize the reason he did it was, it was so important uh, for the company in its existence. And in the early days, everyone that joined the company uh, might not have had like, you know, a fancy college degree. They might've graduated from Tsinghua or, or, you know, Stanford or whatnot, but they definitely believed in what the company was trying to do, which was, you know, help these small businesses or, or help create um, an equal playing field for those who are not part of the mainstream economy. And um, so this start and stop, we had many um, uh, projects that we, we thought uh, were the right approach. And like you said, just before the launch or after months of work, we, we sort of shut them down. But there were also times when experiments were a, a, a surprising success. And, um, you know, one of the more recent ones was this Yuabao, uh, which is this money market fund that uh, some of the ant financial employees created as a way to store uh, excess funds in a wallet. And, um, you know, that money market fund within nine months became kind of one of the largest money market funds in the world. Re- really just as uh, as a result of these engineers trying to create something of convenience for their customers to store funds and get interest, uh, you know, as opposed to, to not have the benefit of that interest bearing account. But it was such a high interest rate because of the efficiencies that they created uh, in, in in the setup that um, everybody's cash started to flow into the, this this money market fund. Um, there there are other examples, um, you know. Just I guess you could say that uh, the evolution of Alibaba in a way was sort of trial and error because it started out with e-commerce, but then that the payments AliPay was created to facilitate the problems of trust. And then, you know, um, uh, the uh, AliCloud was really because there was a concern that the computing requirements were going to be so high that um, we needed to have our own cloud computing system. Otherwise, the company would go bankrupt. But Jack, he will admit, he didn't know how it would turn out. He didn't even know if it was the right, um, you know, technically, he didn't understand all the, the nuances. And there was, um, I don't write about this in the book, but but I can tell you here that, there was actually competing teams when they build AliCloud. Uh, I think the, the the open source code was called uh, uh, Drupal, and then there was a uh, Aspera, which was the the sort of the company's um, own um, uh, cloud computing proprietary software. And they had two com- uh, teams competing at the, uh, with one another internally. You can say that's a huge waste of resources, but what it also allowed them to do is. Is create kind of these contingencies. If one didn't work, then they still had another uh, sort of approach to it. But the best solution came out in an end. And that's why AliCloud is such a formidable uh, sort of company today, because they actually were an early mover in an area that was critical to the digital infrastructure in China. So, um, these are some, some of the examples uh, of, of how this sort of improvisation work. But there's plenty more that we could talk about. And it is a hallmark of the company. But this is also why um, the company has a value called uh, embrace change, which is now change is the only constant. And I also talk about the importance of company values in the book, because that's what conditions the team to be ready to adapt um, to, to this improvisation, but also not in a way you have to prepare yourself mentally because change is not something that most people enjoy especially when they're trying to do a job well
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i i like that uh the the metaphor of uh, the blind man riding the blind tiger i mean it's a- it it maps, it maps very well onto just China's broader sort of socio-economic development over this, you know, three plus decades of reform and opening is there's, yeah. there's so much raw energy pent up in the system. There's so much economic energy that's kind of waiting to get out there that if you're trying to map it all out and, you know, set your five, 10 year plan and then execute on it, you're going to miss out on all the opportunities that come up along the way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's, uh if i could give one skill to like someone who wants to be a chinese <laughs> entrepreneur in the 90s 2000s 2010s it's improvisation that's Absolutely. the one that'll get you somewhere <laughs> um, in in terms of the the sort of the management philosophy you talk uh, a fair amount about this sort of this blending of east and west and mm. and jack specifically speaks about the uh blending what is it? It's, uh, infusing Western management with Chinese philosophy and blending mm. of East and West. He used yeah. various metaphors around Tai Chi and other areas. Yeah. You, give, you give examples of, of when that blend worked well. And you also give examples of when it didn't work well, or when there was friction around the edges. And you, you specifically talk about the, the situation with Yahoo. Yahoo, mm. uh, acquires a 40% stake in Alibaba relatively early on. And it's, it's celebrated as this great win, this kind of coming out party. Finally, Alibaba is connected to a truly you know, world-leading technology company and these synergies that are going to happen. Um, but the fallout, it you know, didn't pan out that way. And I was wondering if you could talk about that, that situation, that process, and, and what you learned from it.
1: Yeah, that was a very interesting time um, because as a you know, a Bay Area guy, I was so excited about the, um, the merger of of these two companies and it was a complex transaction because if you read the western headlines it was you know yahoo acquires 40 percent of alibaba through one billion dollar investment and then if you read the chinese headlines is alibaba acquires yahoo because they actually as part of the deal acquired yahoo china and all its operations in addition to the one billion dollar cash infusion so it was actually both um it just depended on what side of the ocean you were you were on And um, it was also an attempt, like you said, to bring together two great companies. Um, We very much admired and looked up to Yahoo at that time and and, and knew that there was a lot to learn. But it was also this clash of kind of cultures and and mindsets. And there were so many talented um, individuals that came to Alibaba um, after that transaction. Some came from the Yahoo side. Some people were hired kind of from the outside, but very, very qualified. Um, with all the credentials. But what struck me as very strange is so many of them after a year or two ended up leaving the company. Uh, and it was very difficult for them to integrate because there were, um, you know, I think for many of these professionals, including myself, there were there was a belief that there were set ways of doing things. Um, and this maybe gets back to the improvisation aspect. And I, uh, I will add that I even left um, Alibaba after two years to go get an MBA thinking that, I needed to learn these skills to then apply to become a better, you know, leader and contributor to the organization Um, when I returned um, many years later. But, you know, even in 2005, this is, you know, six years after the company uh, was started. I mean, and, and granted, that's still a young company, but, you know, you would have thought that it had kind of adapted and matured into kind of a more international sort of type of organization. And it was international, but it was still, very much kind of Alibaba and I think it's a unique culture. And I think that what that East and West sort of dynamic showed is that there are things that I think um, uh, at least with regard to Alibaba are unique to the organization. Um, The Eastern philosophy, you know, we can talk about this, this, some of these Taoist principles about this dialectic and it's not about it's just that way or this way it's actually both right and how do you kind of how do you adjust how do you calibrate based on the situation and i don't think that's a comfortable thing for a lot of people who come from a traditional business background they they, they talk about in the west um reductionism uh this philosophy mm. is about consistency and always looking for the same thing over and over and over but when it comes to uh eastern philosophy they talk about holism which is balance, right? And so it's like, when do you need a little bit more entrepreneurial kind of versus more kind of professional, when do you need a little bit more of, um, you know, uh, you know, sort of a Western practice versus an Eastern practice. And I think that this is something very difficult for even like Americans like myself to understand. And it's taken me decades. I mean, as I was writing the book, I was starting to finally understand this dynamic, but, um, some people will say, you know, when you're dealing with Chinese businesses, they're always changing their mind. But I think from a Chinese business, it's about survival and adaptation. Um, so I think that gets to some of the elements that were at play. But I also think there's something even more profound. Um, if you talk about the coexistence of contradictions, um, you know, Alibaba, Jack would always say, is, is a business that has a charitable heart but uses business techniques to, to uh, fulfill its goals. And, you know, for the longest time, you know, when when I studied my MBA, we were, we were still very much focused on Milton Friedman's, uh, you know, Chicago sort of school of thought of, of maximizing shareholder value. That's what corporations exist for. And the the whole sort of um, social impact side was kind of CSR. It was kind of nice to have but Jack always talked about how um, Alibaba was, was created to solve these problems. And he, in 2007, our first time that we went public in, in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, he made a speech where he said, you know, uh, customer first, employee second, shareholder third. Um, and the analysts and the uh, investment bankers were <laughs> like, this is crazy. Like, of course, it's the other way around. And um I think that what Jack has proven, and I talk about this in, in my book as well, is that business can actually be used for good. It can be highly profitable, but highly effective in um, affecting positive change within societies. Um, and to me, that was also this, I don't know if you call it East-West, but it's very much Alibaba and kind of my traditional business thinking, how those two uh, uh, disparities kind of came uh, to resolution, and um, so I think that many of these things were new for many of us who were at the company, and uh, I think it came more to a head when you had the uh, the Yahoo deal. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. There's there's so many parts of that 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 sort of resonate with things I've seen or experienced over there. I think, especially in the the class of clash of cultures of merging a. The sort of the the beachhead of a foreign company in China with a homegrown Chinese startup, and that yeah. usually the people who rise to the top of a sort of a foreign beachhead are people who are essentially you know high achievers. They they know what to do. They best grades, yes. top of their class, yes. hired into the best jobs, best jobs, best jobs, and they can they can manage. They can manage. You know they can manage things. Yeah. But someone like Jack, that's not his model at all. He's fundamentally like a, a fighter. You know, yeah. scrappy wise but very nimble and and, and an underdog and when you try to merge people who are used to essentially sort of carrying out orders and managing versus somebody he's used to fighting for everything it's just a oh for sure it's not usually going to be a fair fight
1: matt you know um jack used to say the best way to identify your leaders in a company is throw them in the battlefield and see who comes back alive, then you know they are your your, your top <laughs> leaders. <laughs> There's nowhere more stark than yeah. than that. Um, and and you're right. It was sort of that street smart um, kind of scrappiness that actually is what the company needed at that stage. Um, and uh, those who had gone through experiences, those who had, you know, rather than just do the, you know, what what you're told or do what you're supposed. Supposed to do based on kind of the, the standard practice. It's about encountering situations like you've never had before and figuring out how to deal with it. Um, so so you're absolutely right. And look, I will say that in today's Alibaba, uh, things may have evolved. Like there's still, you asked me this actually in the question, I should answer it. Um, you know, how do you keep a company uh, constantly nimble and, and innovative when it reaches a size that it is now almost 250,000 employees? And I would say that to some extent, there are those who are more professional because the company's evolved and those businesses are more mature. So you're going to want the kinds of people that we had coming in from Yahoo back in 2005 because they are there to make sure that things are run properly and um, following all the different standard practices that are required to, to keep a company going of that size. But then at the same time, there is a need to innovate. And I would say that... Alibaba has done that in, in many different stages of its time by using um, unique management or organizational structures where they'll break up, literally break up these large kind of silos into small um, nimble business units and then manage through a council versus like one-to-one. And they have like, you know, maybe the CEO and they you'll have like a group of people who are in charge of different areas, but then, they also have the business heads that report into them in this council. Mm-hmm. Sometimes even at some point they rotate them, right, in terms of who takes on the leadership of that council. And so there, there are very innovative ways that, that Alibaba has been able to keep the entrepreneurial spirit alive. But I also think part of it, too, is relates to the, the culture that they instill through the values, which remains an important part of the organization.
0: I'm going to kind of move us along the timeline a bit here yeah. to get us a, a little bit more into closer to the present day and then I'm going to go to audience questions after okay. this one but as, as sort of one final question for you to get into some of the the international work that you did later on in the company um you talk about in 2012-13 you spent a couple of years away from the company as a, a ceo of another company in hong kong kind of doing your own thing and when that when that business ends up getting sold you sort of start going back and talking to mentors, including Jack, looking for a little bit of direction. Mm-hmm. And you have an interesting story about the advice he gave you, where that sort of took you, and how that eventually led you back towards towards Alibaba for some international adventures. So when you went back to Jack after that, and what advice did he give you, and, and where did that take you?
1: Well, normally when you go to see a mentor and you ask for advice, you expect him or her to say, well, you know, you're interested in this and that field. You should talk to so-and-so and maybe they can give you a job. Like that, that's the pretty much the more straightforward way of mentoring someone or giving the advice. When I went to see Jack, I was like, you know, I'm not feeling like what I'm doing has the meaning and the, the purpose that I once uh, believed in. What, uh, what is your advice? He said, go to the poorest part of China, find a rural area and just stay there and uh, make sure you're uncomfortable. And he said, if you're comfortable there, then move and go somewhere even worse uh, and, and stay there. And it, once you feel very uncomfortable, stay longer. <laughs> and I said, okay. And then what? And he said, then come back and talk to me. And I, w- I couldn't understand what on earth he was trying to get at. But I, I actually did it. I actually went to Guizhou. Um, and I think there's probably worse places to visit in China, but it was the poorest, one of the poorest provinces in the country. But it's beautiful because it has lush green mountains and just not a lot of uh, industry that's there for for wealth creation. And and I went in to villages and lived in places that you can't get to by car uh, and stayed for for you know like a week or so. And one of the things that impressed me um, on my tour there was these villages how empty they were. And um, these were what they now call hollow villages where you had these young infants and elderly people taking care of the infants. And I would go to some of these different events they had. And it was depressing because basically they even had some performances, I think, um, I forgot what time of year it was, but some festivals. And it was these old people dressed up and then the the, the babies being held by uh, these, these grandparents in the audience. And what I realized is most of the working age people had left the villages. They'd gone to the cities like we see so many times in, in these Chinese cities. People, uh, you know, as waiters, as uh, construction laborers, as helpers, you know, uh, nannies for, for families in the cities, they're going to the cities to find work. And um, as a result, you have this this huge collapse of the rural communities, but also the cities are being inundated and infrastructure is being stressed uh, because of this large influx. And I asked myself at that point, you know, because I was I was a bit ha- almost heartbroken to see what was happening in the villages. What what can one do to help these people? Because China was clearly on on the upswing in terms of its economic growth, yet it wasn't reaching these people. And so it turns out that, you know, I still had a lot of contacts with friends at Alibaba at that time and uh, after I um, had visited Guizhou, I met with some of them and one of them actually said, well, you know, what you're describing is a phenomenon that is a big issue in China but strangely enough, we've discovered this this phenomenon where uh, people in these villages are actually utilizing e-commerce to actually create wealth in the villages and you should go visit these places and one of them was a a uh, village in uh, Jiangsu province called Shaji Township, Dongfeng Village. And this this young man named Sun Han was um, uh, this example of someone who had brought e-commerce to his village in li- what was literally a, in the past a garbage village. It was a village where they would actually deliver uh, or bring all the trash that was being imported from Japan and the United States and Europe, and they would um, actually uh, kind of separate it out for recycling purposes, uh, Sun Han would say how the village used to smell like burning plastic and the, even the, the creeks alongside where he'd walk were black because of the pollution. He essentially uh, brought back an idea to do DIY furniture in his village after spending some time in the city, going to school and then dropping out and trying other businesses. He discovered that the Internet and e-commerce was was actually a viable approach. And he was able to create a cluster of small businesses in his village facilitated by uh, Taobao um, to create a DIY furniture cluster, which today now employs probably half of the township. And it's hundreds of millions of dollars in, in revenue. It's probably one of the biggest clusters for manufacturing of DIY furniture. And so when I learned about this, it was still kind of growing. It wasn't what it is today, but... That got me very excited, and that's when I returned to see Jack, and I told him how you know this is something that I can really be passionate about. It turns out that Jack also was about to start his IPO uh, process for two thousand fourteen, and so he needed someone to help him in that regard. Uh, but really, for me, it was this idea that you can help a society uh, through in, in a profound way using technology, and, and this village phenomenon, I think, was something that got me uh, very, very uh, motivated. So, yeah, that, that is the, uh, the the turning point or the catalyst for me uh, in, in the experience. Great. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start going
0: to some audience questions here. Mm-hmm. And the first one that we've got is very simple. It's could an Alibaba be started now in China? There's probably a lot behind that question. Yeah. There's uh, political currents, you know, uh, yeah. the sort of multi-year, uh, some people call it a crackdown on tech. Some people call yeah. it a rectification, a regulatory yeah. firestorm. There's all those issues. There's also just the issue that there are so many more mature and very big and powerful Chinese internet companies that it might be harder for a, a scrappy start to, to come out. What, what's your read?
1: Yeah. I mean, my my direct answer is uh, no. Um, not an Alibaba. But uh, in the reason being that there's a time and place for all of these types of phenomenon to come of age. And if you read the first part of the book, um, I go through all the different building blocks that contributed to an enabling environment for the digital economy growth uh, in China. And there was absolutely the right conditions at that time, uh, whether it's, you know, the stage in economic development of China itself, or the government policies that kind of led to this late touch approach of technology um and in many other things. Um, it's not to say that uh you know that there, there isn't room for a phenomenon of other types of companies to emerge uh, that could have an equal impact. Um, but they're going to be in different industries. You know, internet had its the internet as we know it kind of had its moment. But you know everybody is talking about Web3 as the next iteration, right? Is that going to happen in China or is that going to happen somewhere else is a big question. But I think if you look at um, digital economy as it relates to commerce and how it facilitates things, there is definitely room in other countries, uh, particularly in the regions like Africa. I think that if you look at Southeast Asia, what's happened there, and Matt, you've studied this as well, countries like Indonesia um, and India uh, have had you know similar Uh, evolutions, but at a much faster rate. They've been inspired by Silicon Valley, but they've also been inspired by China in the models that have emerged. So the question would really be, where are the enabling environments today? And where is that opportunity to replicate something like Alibaba? Which I think is what gets me excited uh, even today in looking at the other emerging markets, because we're fortunate to have a blueprint for what happened in a country that had very little. And there are many countries in places like Africa that have very little but have great need. And this is part of what I spent my time at the last few years while at Alibaba doing is trying to share these lessons um, with African and Southeast Asian and Latin American entrepreneurs to say, what can you learn from what Alibaba did? Because for someone to say this is impossible is um, is is completely misleading because Jack uh, was an English teacher. Uh, He was in a country, as I mentioned, that had a very low per capita income, very little in the way of internet users, yet he was able to create something as impactful as as, uh, Alibaba. So how do you create the right conditions for that in other countries? And this is entrepreneurs play a role, but also governments. Um, Part of what I was hoping in this book is that governments would also – some people would read these – the the, the different uh, aspects that I talk about in this book – And think about how government policy can actually better facilitate entrepreneurial success in whatever country they're in. So it's a public-private sort of partnership that's required, but entrepreneurs play a a critical Mm -hmm. role in building this uh, ecosystem
0: just one follow on in terms of sort of, uh, you know, preaching this gospel of Alibaba and how it how it made its way in these places. How would you describe the kind of the receptivity or the interest? I think sometimes in the U.S. there's still even a little bit of resistance to the idea of learning from China in any yes. sort of meaningful way. How, how would you describe the the reception in these places?
1: I th- in, in these places being the emerging markets or in the U.S.?
0: Emerging markets, yeah. yeah. Emerging markets, yeah.
1: Um, I, I think it's very different. And I think this is something that we need to wake up to as, as Americans that realize that the world is changing um, and the solutions now are no longer um, you know, just coming from from uh, America or Silicon Valley. We do not have a mono- monopoly, I guess, on, on you know the answers to some of these societal problems. Um, and and therefore, it's incumbent on, on us to also study what's happening in places like China. But uh, I would say that in countries like <clears throat> or regions like Southeast Asia, the conditions in those countries are much more similar to China than the U.S. Therefore, there is an affinity to thinking about, well, how can payments help me address the unbanked population issue? Um, how does e-commerce uh, help me solve my access to products and services uh, in a rural community, right? I mean, people literally uh, came from uh, different countries to visit uh, these villages that we talked about, these, these what they call Taobao villages, to see how the, the phenomenon was, was um, created. And what you also see, there is a whole informal economy that exists in many of these countries, and uh, one of the amazing things about digital payments is that it's able to formalize informal economies by bringing them into the sort of mainstream, giving them banking services, giving them access to procurement services, giving them um, even lending. You know, the whole phenomenon of microfinance is just exploded. And what that does for these street merchants or for these farmers is game changing. Right. And a lot of that can be um you know, sort of inspired from sort of the examples that I talked about that emerged from China. So I would say they're, they're more open-minded to it. They're borrowing from each, uh, the you know, e, uh, U.S. And, and China, and then finding what works best for their needs. Great. I'm
0: going to try to get in two more questions here before we okay. end in just about 10 minutes. Um, the first one, uh, an audience question here. Again, quite simple. What does Alibaba look like today, and is Jack Ma still involved? This is a very live question, I think, a very <laughs> rapidly evolving one. So I'll see. I'll see what you have to say on
1: that. Okay. So um, the the question is, what, what is the situation with Alibaba? Yeah.
0: What is it? it what does Alibaba look like today? Okay, okay. Is Jack Ma still involved? Okay.
1: So obviously, Alibaba um, is is still a, a very much a dynamic company that's tr- evolving with with the, the times and the needs it's been a difficult two years two three years i think in terms of policy um uh and and how government is regulating sort of certain areas and i'd say that this isn't unique to china it's actually globally there's been a growing concern about big tech and kind of its its impact on kind of the larger society uh antitrust monopoly these types of things just because Size-wise, has just grown very quickly. Um, I think that it's just that whether it's the United States, Europe, or or China, the the methodology has been different, and so um, we've seen some of that impact on on Chinese internet companies. Nevertheless, I think that there is absolutely a role for these companies, not only in kind of continuing the uh, the, the commercial, the e commerce aspects, but also in in new areas. Um, Industrial Internet, I think, is a very important area. How do you kind of move from just the the sales and marketing side to actually manufacturing to make it more efficient? Uh, I think that's an area that Alibaba is is continuing to to grow and and develop. Uh, Cloud computing uh, is also obviously the engine for the digital economy. So whether it's large companies, Or small businesses, I think that is an area that will continue to be very important. And then there's a a bunch of newer areas that are emerging, metaverse and and, and, and blockchain, etc. So that's all happening. It's quite dynamic. Um, In terms of Jack's involvement, you know, he's he's officially retired. So I think he's leaving it for the next generation. Um, And, you know, he's, I think, uh, very much uh, interested and curious about... um, Uh, new things. Um, There's been talk about agritech is something he's looking at, but also philanthropy. You know, he's using a lot of his past experience to enable entrepreneurs uh, in other parts of the world, also helping the rural communities in education in China. I think he's got plenty on his plate. um, And hopefully, you know, we'll be seeing some of that come to fruition um, as we move forward.
0: All right, I think yep. we've got just time for maybe one more question here, which is uh, another straightforward one. What is the number one lesson that other companies can or should learn from Alibaba's culture? I know you've got decades of experience, <laughs> tons of lessons. You're being asked to boil it down, so yeah. you know even it doesn't have to be the number one, but a top lesson that that you felt that you learned over time there from Alibaba's culture that you think can be applied more broadly.
1: Hopefully this isn't controversial, but I truly believe that, um, what makes Alibaba so unique is its ability to link work in with your life. And Jack would say things like Alibaba is, uh, well, as Jack would say, yeah, uh, life is work and work is life. And we even have Alibaba has a value that says, um, to work happily and live seriously. Uh, and what that means is it's very important to think about before anybody takes a job uh, what kind of life they want to live, what is the life of purpose, life of meaning, and then figure out um, how your work fits into that. And so there's a lot of complaint and criticism of things like 996, which is 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. That was kind of something that uh, came up. <clears throat> in the news because, you know, people were feeling overworked and, you know, obviously this is, needs- this is
0: the, just the common for, for the audience this is a common stock phrase in China that you work to nine, nine, six, nine days a week, or sorry, six days a week, 9am to 9pm. Exactly. And it became a, like almost like a workforce, a, a meme, a workforce meme about overwork in
1: yeah. in tech companies. Yeah, Exactly. And by the way, it's not like Silicon Valley people don't grind it out. Like that's always been a hallmark of just a startup life, right? But the question is, like, should you make that a requirement of people's everyday sort of routine? And, and I don't think it should be. I, I talk about that in the book as well. But the point of all this is that if you find something that resonates with your greater life purpose and it's part of your day to day work, it's not going to be work. It's going to be something that you would love to do anyhow. And I think that. Um, you know, in the time that I worked at the company, it very much was instilled within uh, us that we're all there. And I think it was a powerful force, uh, a powerful force that allowed the company to be so successful in in spite of the odds that were against us. And I think that that is probably uh, something that I, I've taken away that I would like to apply to future companies that I, you know, try and create or advise entrepreneurs and you know maybe it sounds a bit Pollyannish or whatnot, but I do believe this because, and I didn't believe it for for certain points. That's why I left the company and did other things. But I kept coming back to this because ultimately, for my life, which is kind of that conversation I recapped when I um, saw Jack and went to Guizhou, is that's why I, in my everyday life, I exist for a purpose, and I'm trying to find things that will help enhance and uh, you know kind of forward that that own personal life mission and that's how work fits into this so um, to me that was my greatest lesson uh, that i took away from my alibaba time yeah
0: purpose purpose driven work it's uh, it's true that this almost feels like it's gone sort of out of fashion in a way the idea of work-life balance where the the move is primarily to push work out of life (laughs) and uh and and sort of have these two separate zones it seems to be a little bit more uh of the going you know of the, of the popular yes. uh, approach at the moment Absolutely. but um, yeah that seems like a valuable lesson there. Yeah. I think we still do have a couple minutes left okay. so I might just throw in one or two of my own okay. uh, questions here at the end. I guess um, maybe uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about what you're up to now you know you've spent yeah. you've been busy the last few years working sure. uh, on founding radii yeah. and then working on the book. I wonder if you could sort of talk a little bit about these different projects and how you sort of see them coming together in your own work.
1: Sure. No, thanks for asking, Matt. Um, For me, all this is, as I referenced what I just answered in your last question, is all very much part of my kind of life mission. Uh, I originally, and I still believe that what I want to do is to focus on something that will have the greatest uh, benefit to the greatest number of people, right? very utilitarian, I guess you'd say, but a greatest, uh, good for the greatest number. Uh, and I thought that would be through healthcare. And then I realized technology can have a massive impact on society for the good, better, uh, of society. Um, and so s- since leaving Alibaba, I've wanted to do the same. And part of that is encapsulating the lessons that we just talked about through the book. And then hopefully that will, uh, you know, reach many people in many parts of the world. I still teach a course, also an entrepreneurship course with the Alibaba Global Initiatives, but um, writing a book I think will allow that all to be captured into to, you know, this, this um, in, in one efficient way. Um, but Radii, uh, R-A-D-I-I uh, is how we spell it, radii.co, is a sort of a media platform that I've created to tell stories about sort of Chinese youth culture. Um, whether from China or kind of the larger diaspora, but I, but I think what's really important is that we continue to understand, um, you know, each other from a people to people basis, um, understanding how cultures evolve, kind of what makes us similar, what makes us different, but also humanize, um, you know, each other. And I think that one of the biggest concerns that I saw and, and see even more so now in terms of the rhetoric that happens at the high levels, in governments, but also mainstream media, is that things get overly simplified uh, and there is a polarization and a demonization of um, countries and people that uh, can push us too far in, 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 in a certain direction. Um, I'm, I'm very cognizant of, of the, the reasons why Concerns exist whether it 's competitiveness, technology ec- economy etc but we we shouldn 't lose the greater the bigger picture and I think this is what you've done um, Matt as well, both at the Carnegie Foundation but also in your writing is is trying to help understand one another through human stories um, but also nuanced conversations right there 's so much benefit that can come from uh, the technology that, uh, both U.S. and China are creating to address the larger issues that we talk about, you know, wealth inequality being one, but also climate change, which I think you did work at Paulson Institute. Um, they, they do a lot in that area, but also disease prevention and, um, food security. We actually have on hand the solutions or at you know, within reach the solutions to solving many of these issues kind of on an incremental basis and long-term, hopefully fundamentally, uh, if we just kind of uh, collaborate in those areas that, that matter. And some of the greatest breakthroughs in terms of technology and research have come as a result of U.S.-China collaboration. So I think that the rest of the world is kind of looking uh, from afar, thinking, geez, if these two guys can't get along, then what's what's in it for the rest of us? And there is obviously growing pressure for countries to take sides. But I think most countries with a rational mind would not want to have to take a side. Instead, they would like to get the benefits from both. And um, as I mentioned earlier, I see that happening to some extent within regional um, sort of digital economy models. But um, the, the more we push this to a level where you have to make choices, the more likely we are to kind of harm ourselves in, in the longer run and in the bigger picture. So that, uh, to me is, is, um, how I'm spending my time is whatever I can do on a small incremental basis, uh, to, to kind of facilitate that conversation. Great. I think
0: yeah. that's a perfect place to stop. Um, okay. Thanks so much to Brian Wong, a longtime executive at Alibaba and author of the new book, The Tao of Alibaba, Inside the Chinese Digital Giant That is Changing the World. Um, thanks to him for joining us. And also thank you to the audience for watching along and participating. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club in efforts in making virtual, virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. Thank you very much. And thank you, have a good night.